1: Today is Tuesday, September 21st, 2021. And uh, this is episode 2959 of the Survival Podcast. And today is uh, it's kind of an email jack and get answer show. Except it's not like, you know, six or eight or nine or ten emails like it usually is a list for feedback. This is a single email. And I thought, boy, this is a great subject. And I think it'll help everybody. But I bet there's a lot of people in this demographic, one place or another or soon to be in this demographic, uh, and some beyond it. And then, well, it'll probably still help you too. Because it's going to be a show on investing. And this was the email I got, and I'm going to change the person's name to initials so that I don't give their the name away. I'm not sure they want that. But somebody sent me an email, <clears throat> I read it this morning, and said, Jack, could you do a show for people like me? I'm in my mid-30s and making more money than I have ever made before. But I knew not. I do not have good financial role models. I'm good at saving, but have too much in cash, the bank, and not working for me. I'm buying crypto by dollar cost averaging, but kind of way, but in kind of a way, but not enough. Thanks, SB. And I think this is like what you would call one of those good problems to have. And we're going to talk about this today. We're going to talk about like SB's at a point where he really does need to start thinking about how to put his money to work for him. And he got there in a way that a lot of people his age, a little younger, a little older, still haven't got to because they haven't taken that first step, which is stacking the cash, which everybody seems afraid to do right now, but it's the first step. And when I go through today's episode, you'll understand why. we were going to talk about crypto some today, but only a little bit. I know I talk about it a lot, but I talk about it a lot because I don't think a lot of you need to understand what a dollar is or how a dollar works. I don't, th- I don't think a lot of you have to understand what a stock is, what an ETF is, what a mutual fund is. Maybe, maybe you do, and maybe we'll make sure that we get some of that in today, too. But the reason I talk about crypto is due to the resistance. I don't do it for the people in this audience that have been on board a long time. I guess I do some, but I mean, really the people I think can most benefit from it are the ones that are still holdouts, because I think it's something that can't be ignored, and specifically Bitcoin. And we're really going to confine what I talk about today, the crypto portion, which will be 5% of the whole show, to Bitcoin and Ethereum from a standpoint of true investing in the classic sense. We're going to cover a lot of other things too, and I hope it's clear over the years that I have not strayed from my core philosophy of how to build wealth, which is summed up best in uh, George S. Claussen's book, The Richest Man in Babylon, which I'll refer to quite a bit today. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is KnifeKits.com. How cool would it be if you had a knife that you made when you were a kid with your dad or your mom or your aunt or your uncle or your grandparent? How cool would that be? If you had that, would you trade it? Now, unless you're fairly young and your dad's still around and what have you, you can't go do that now. But I bet you you have a son or a daughter, nephew or niece, grandchild that you could do that with. Why don't you take a shot, like I've been talking about for years, and build yourself a knife at knifekits.com and create a family heirloom? It won't matter if it's your first one and it's not very good. Would you care? If you could go right now into a drawer, pull it out, take out a knife, and tell your grandson or your son, I made this with your granddad or your great-granddad, how valuable would it be to you? And it's a great hobby. It's a great way to learn skills. It can turn into a side hustle or a full-time business. And Knife Kits makes it easy to get started. Check them out today at KnifeKits.com. And they do do a, member, a discount for members as well of the MSB. Next up, the Free State Project. Have you ever thought that maybe where you're living is just not free enough and you want to be part of liberty somewhere else? Free State Project is a great way to do that. And one thing you can do right now, go to fsp.org forward slash visit nh and learn how you can go up to New Hampshire, take a great vacation, meet some people while you're there, see some things not everybody sees when they go on vacation because you're not doing just the tourist things. And check it out at the same time and see if maybe you want to be part of it. And remember, if there's any way you can support the Free State Project, even if you're not going to move there, that's me. I want to support them anyway. I've spoken at three of their events. I've been the keynote at two of them. They're a paid sponsor now, but I've given them free sponsorship in the past. And I've promoted them in one way or another since 2009, only a year into my walk with TSP. That tells you something. And there's a reason I do it. There's a reason I do it, guys. It's because I believe that Liberty Anywhere is good for Liberty Everywhere. All right, now before I jump into this topic today, and I'll tell you the show might be a little bit short because of everything that's going on, I want to give you guys an update because I've said some things about what's happened here recently, and I've had people reach out and offer to help and all. I'll tell you that we're still looking, but I think we're, it's going to work itself out. But if you're near a, a part of Pennsylvania called Minersville, uh, maybe you can help us. And that's about it. It's not a big, it's not a big thing, but it might be a big ask because it takes time to do. And it's, it's, it's something I, I, I need done to help with the personal family issue that I'm not going to talk about on the air. But it's pretty much pick something up, stick it in an envelope and mail it to me. Uh, that's, that's really what it is because I can't go up there right now. Um, and that's, it's something that like there's nothing anybody can do other than that right now anyway. But, uh, it is something that's weighing on me. So it's uh, it's distracting and it's uh, stressful. The other side though I told you guys recently about my uh, Achilles tendon injury. I got good news on that today I went to the doctor today and uh, it, this was scary. I thought you know man coming into a workshop, I got a vacation plan with my wife and then just this time of year this is my busiest time of the year. The end of the year from now, Up until Thanksgiving, I'm just balls to the wall. And I went through a vacation in the middle of it because my wife deserves one. And then Saturday night, I'm outside walking, just walking back to my door. And I know sometimes when it happens to you, you think you hear it, but it's just you felt it and it feels like you heard it. Or it's in your body, so there's acoustics in our body. There was a gentleman with me who was down to visit me. And he was good 10 feet away, and he said it sounded like I broke a, like I stepped on a stick and broke a stick. It was a very loud pop. When that happens to a tendon, you're like, wow, wow. So I couldn't bear any weight on the ball of the foot. It was definitely some level of a rupture of the tendon. Basically, the tendon stretched, the fibers tore in it, but it didn't pop. It didn't have like the muscle balled up in the leg or anything. But I couldn't put any weight on the ball of the foot. Like, if I tried, it wasn't that it hurt. It just wasn't there. And I was worried that I had stretched that tendon to the point. And a tendon, you know, like, you, if you reach down and feel your Achilles tendon, it's really easy to feel. I couldn't feel it. It was like it was gone. It recessed way deep into the muscle because it had been elongated. So think of, like, not, not popping a guitar string, but tightening it or loosening it by stretching it to where it becomes loose, like that. And, again, it made this loud pop. So I immediately started slathering it with Comfrey, um, put a brace on it, and uh, it's gotten better day by day. And I went and saw the doc today, and I said, do you think I should go get imaging on it? He said, no, don't waste your money. He said, it'll probably take you two th- or three weeks to fully recover, maybe four. Be careful, but you've already come a long way. In fact, he was surprised how far I'd come. And I, I-, I told him about Comfrey. He's a good doctor. He, he wrote down the name, Dr. Christopher's, uh, it was interesting to see a doctor think that way. Um, and so I want you to know if you've been worried about that for me, because Achilles tendon injury can be extremely long-term and difficult to recover from. And surgery on one is something you only want to do if you have to, because it is so important, you know, the job that it does. I'm going to be fine. And that was a big lift. And it was a big lift off, the kind of the weight, because it's not just I don't have to deal with that, it's that I can get through the next couple months, which are going to be crazy. So anyway, that's good to go. Probably more than you wanted to know, but you know, if you didn't want to hear it all, you could have skipped through it. All right, so let's get into this. Again, I want to read SB's uh, email to me that I'm, I'm doing this show based on a for, for the people that did skip ahead, right? Jack, could you do a show for people like me? I'm in my mid-30s making more money than I've ever made before, but I do not have a very good financial role models. So I'm good at saving but have way too much cash in the bank. And not working for me. I buy crypto in a dollar-averaging dollar kind of way, but not enough. Thanks, SB. All right, so even though you've kind of gotten through the first part of this, SB, I'm going to start here for everybody. And the most important thing that people can understand so that they can get to the problem you have, which is I have more money than I know what to do with. That's literally your problem. The strongest thing you have when you are young is your labor and its income. And I recently did a show where I talked about how the problem that we have right now is we're moving into a deflationary world. We have an inflationary... Actually, I think this was a Miyagi Mornings episode. But while there's inflation on a lot of things that we buy, fuel, housing, food, etc., we're actually in a deflationary economy. And this is the economy, the market itself, trying to correct for the stupidity of government. And to understand this you have to understand what the Federal Reserve did in the creation of a fractional reserve monetary system, what their intention was. Inflation is a plan. It's not a thing that just happens. The inflation that we experience in our society, the devaluation of the dollar by more than 98% since 1913, when that that system was put in place, is a plan. They have built the entirety of society around the idea that the value of a dollar will fall by about 2 cents a year. Some years a little less, some years a lot more, but that they can, through all of their tricks, manipulate it so that over a 10-year period, you get a 2% per annum inflation rate. That's their plan. And that's the inflation rate they're honest about, not the real inflation you would find if you went to somewhere like ShadowStats. So that's the plan. And because they have a lot of power, And it does. The people that tell you it doesn't work—it's a you know. When I say it works, I don't mean it's good, right? A, A baseball bat with a bunch of ten penny nails put to it, like a like a old old school mace, right? Like a battle mace, right? If you bash somebody in the head with it, does it work? It doesn't mean it's good. So when I say it works, I'm just acknowledging that it functions as designed as best it can entering the reality of the world, and it has done so for over a 100 years. And this has always been a battle because prices in a well-run, well-ordered, market-based economy should not just keep going up every year. Because most of us have lived our entire lives noticing this, as though it was a normal way for things to be. We believe that it is the case that it should cost more to get a house. It should cost more to get a gallon of gas. It should cost more to get a car. Even those of us that think it costs too much more think, well, it should still cost more. Like, we're just saying that it's too much inflation. That we accept inflation as a given. It's not. It's not the way the economy is supposed to function at all. As we get better at doing things, smarter, quicker, and faster, right, then the cost of doing things should go down, and there's places where this has happened over and over and over again because the market fundamentals are so strong that they overcome the system known as fractional reserve banking. So this is electric. The more technology that's involved, the more high technology involved, the more the market shows the truth. So if you think back, I'll go back to uh, two thousand and. 3, I think it was. We had been to a friend's house for the Super Bowl, and he had a beautiful TV. It was like 50 inches, and it was a rear projection television. Big, thick ones, but it had a big screen, and it projected from behind. And we liked it so much, we thought we should get something like that. And we ended up buying a 47-inch television, rear projection, because we decided the 50 was just too much, and we didn't really have the space for it in our living room in Pennsylvania. And I don't remember what we paid for it, but it was, it was well close to $2,000. Well close to $2,000. Now, today, if I want to buy, let's say, a 55-inch uh, flat screen, not, not necessarily top of the line, but a, it's 100 times better than the one I just told you we bought. Versus here's, I'm just sitting on Amazon right now. 55-inch, crystal clear. Samsung. 4K Ultra TV, 4K resolution, five hundred ninety-seven ninety-nine. If if I want to go to a, a bargain brand, I can buy a TCL fifty-five inch 4K resolution television set for four hundred twenty-eight dollars. Now, if I was in the market for a fifty-five inch TV, I would probably buy a better TV than that TCL. But that TCL for four hundred twenty-eight bucks is not a little bit better than that projection screen television that I think we eventually gave away, that we bought less than 20 years ago. Now, if you price a lot of things that people have to buy that are in the part of the economy that's non-optional spending, and you compare 2003 to 2021, the cost of inflation is through the roof. But in an example like that, and in in every aspect where technology is there, there is a deflationary element of the market so powerful it overcomes complete manipulation by the banking system think about that and why is that important when i talk about your labor and your work because your your labor is now deflationary when people talk about how how real wages are down it, it's it's an easy thing to get emotional over but because it affects you so dramatically but the reason is Because the value of human labor, especially if it's not highly specialized labor, is down. It's not just that wages are down. The value of a human being digging a hole with a shovel is lower today than it was in 1970. And the reason is because the high technology right, that we can use to buy a machine like an excavator that can do the work of a 100 people digging a hole in half the time, the cost of that machinery now, not a top-end giant one that can, you know, dig one scoop and it's as big as a dump truck, but but uh, the, the kind of thing you would use to replace a human being is much cheaper than it than it was in the 1970s, adjusted for inflation. So that's an example of a very systematic, very crude form of automation. And if you look at when we start looking at things like what a computer can do today, think about the fact that in the 1960s. We had, in 70s even early 80s we had typing pools you go into a big corporation and there might be a hundred women usually they were women that did this job sitting behind typewriters typing up memos everything that that company needed for paperwork they would type it up and you know doing carbon copy you know before the, the first xerox machines and stuff right like there were that was a job what's the value of somebody sitting at a typewriter today even if it's a computer, if all you're doing is data entry, you're not as important. There's computers that can do the data entry by by mining a database. Even engineers, certain functionality that engineers perform has been devalued because technology can replace. We take one engineer, and maybe he actually makes a really good wage, but he's doing the work that 10 engineers used to do by leveraging technology. So one of the things we need to get underneath us right now is we need to be innovative and we need to be doing new things. So this is for you young people that aren't where SB is yet. You're not that old. You need to be entering the workforce thinking this way. How do I get into a place where my labor continues to have value? Because labor as a whole is going down. But right now the most valuable thing that anybody has until they're able to build investment streams, until they're able to build, um, let's say, real estate portfolios before they're able to maybe build a business that they're not 100% responsible for the labor in, where you have people working or you have machines working or you have systematic working that produces an income for you when you're not working. The most valuable thing you have is your labor. So even though it's being deflated and even though you need to be smart about it, you need to work hard and make money and spend less than you earn. As boring as that is, that's why SB has this nice-to-have problem. Works hard, makes good money, didn't always make good money. Works hard, started sa- I guarantee you SB started saving money before he made the kind of money he's making now where he had to ask this question. And the reason you have to think this way, even though I tell you that money's being devalued, the cost of capital, uh, Michael Siller puts the cost of corporate capital, a corporation sitting on cash on their balance sheet, right now as high as 15%. It's, it's 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 corporate suicide to sit on lots of cash right now. You have to do something with it. Even if he's wrong by half, if it's seven seven and a half percent, it's corporate it's suicide. They have to do something with it. But what is if you only have five hundred dollars put away and it goes down in value by seven percent? It's it's a few bucks. Another way to look at it: if you get a hundred percent return on a thousand dollars invested, you made a thousand dollars. And you took risk to to get to make a hundred percent return. You took significant risk. I know that this last year you could have picked quite a few cryptocurrencies, bought a thousand dollars worth of it. You could have just picked anything that looked like it wasn't going to fall apart, and probably made a hundred percent return or better on it. But that that situation doesn't always exist. And for everyone, you could have picked where you were right. There was two you could have picked where you were wrong. Even what looks like a bull market, there's a lot of these either did nothing or they lost money. Right? So you had to take a lot of risk on a thousand dollar investment to make a thousand dollars with something no investor would call anything less than a home run, a hundred percent return, especially in a year. Okay, but it's still, it's only a thousand dollars because you only invested a thousand dollars. You got it? So in the time that people will spend wringing their hands, what do I do with this thousand dollars? They could have went and made another thousand dollars. They could do that. Doing, you see, this is the thing. While labor's deflating, there's actually good ways for the hustler to make money. It could be out doing things like DoorDash or Amazon Deliveries or Uber or Lyft or putting sheds together in somebody's backyard as a contractor, a hundred different things, working weekends only, working a, a few hours this night and a few hours that night only, and, and, and can make a couple $300 a week and stack that cash until you build up that career to where you're making enough money that it doesn't make sense for you to do that anymore. And so this all so far, like SB's going, okay, Jack, help me. I'm about to. But I want as many people out there to be SB as possible. Because even if SB doesn't really, really, really do a home run from here, it'll be okay. It's going to be okay. There's plenty of things we can do, plenty of things we're going to go forward, but you've got to get there first. So step one stack, cash, screw, inflation, cuz, math. Cuz, math. Even if you got 10 grand, if that's all your savings, you're not, you don't need to worry about inflation yet. It's time to start, but you don't need to be real worried about it. You don't need to worry that if I don't get this done in the next week or two, I'm going to be holding Zimbabwe dollars. That's not where we're at. Not yet, anyway. We could get there. I don't see it soon. We could, and that's why we're doing a show like we're doing today. Experts say what when it comes to saving your money? Save 10% of your income. A portion of mine, a portion of all I earn is mine to keep. That's what George Clausen says in Richest Man in Babylon. A portion of all I earn is mine to keep. And in the book, the first person that learns that lesson says, well, all I earn is mine to keep. I guess except for what the tax man gets, right? But what you earn is what you actually receive. Right, so it's all mine to keep. And the guy, you know, the wise person says, "Well, and how do you feed your family? Well, I buy food. Okay, so that portion is not yours to keep. You know, how do you get? I think the guys like he builds chariots, right? When you need new tools for your chariot building, you know, stuff, where, where do you get the money? When a guy brings a chariot in, and you have to do something to it, and you need a part." I know you charge them for it, but how, what do you do? So like, you have to, for the next job, you have to buy this thing. How do you keep a roof over your head? How do you provide clothing for yourself and your family? Of course, you realize there's a ton of the money that comes in. He actually makes a lot of money. This is a, this is a high trade labor job for the time. It might be something like some sort of blue collar engineering work today or running a construction crew that's profitable with a bonus structure. You're doing well. But you have an outflow. You have an outflow. and You have to manage the outflow. And the experts say 10%. And experts are at least half wrong, so I say 20 And if you can do 25, all the better. And here's the beauty of saving money. And this is something, I've had this conversation with so many people, especially young people. Especially young people turning the corner where they could be SB, but they're not yet. They feel like, I have worked so hard where I actually have money to do the things I want, have the things I want, buy the things I want, and it feels good to spend it. And one thing that they don't realize is they have destroyed the mindset that made this country as wealthy as it is. They always talk about wealth in this country like it was just the Carnegies and the, the Mellons and the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts, etc. Those were the wealth, those were the rich and they extracted money from everybody and you know none of these people were nice people. Okay, all of them were cutthroats. But they went after each other more than they did the average person. But what made this country really wealthy? because when you take if you take the top one percent all all today the billionaires back then a millionaire was like a billionaire a hundred years ago because the Federal Reserve is good at its job deflation that's that's how good it is you if you had a million dollars in nineteen hundred you never had to worry about doing anything again if you didn't want to and you could live like a like a top end life. And if you invested your money well and you didn't screw it up, your, your kids would inherit enough wealth more than you had. You'd end up dying with more than you started with if you had a million dollars back then. That's how powerful it was, and to, to the level was almost equivalent to being a freaking billionaire. Really, let that sink in. So you gotta, you've gotta build up your wealth like a battery, and you gotta think of your wealth like a battery. And this is what a, a battery does. It stores value. It stores value. And what I mean by that is, even I'm talking like a, a, a D battery cell. This us it's rechargeable. It's empty. And you start somehow generating electricity. And you put it in that battery. It's a pretty small battery. But when that battery has reached its full capacity, it's got as much energy in it as it can, That is value. In fact, the single most valuable thing that human beings know is energy. And it can be in many forms. Energy can be in the form of moving water. It can be in the form of a splitting atom. But the most common way that we move energy is in the form of electricity. And electricity is the single most valuable thing we have Because you can do almost anything with it. And you need a way to store it. And you need to think about money that way. Right? And the the reason that the stored energy value is value is because it can do work. So what what that tells us is we need to put the money into a safe store of value. But we also need to apply the energy that's being stored in a way that can do work. And if we don't, then it begins to erode in value. This is why I love Bitcoin, because it doesn't really erode in value. Price may be volatile. Up and down value that way is not what I'm talking about. A Bitcoin is a Bitcoin, is a Bitcoin, is a Bitcoin. And 10 years from now, it will still be one Bitcoin. Compared to a battery, or compared to the dollar. And a dollar is a good way to compare it to a battery. What happens to a battery... If I put that battery fully charged into a box and leave it alone, what happens? You know what happens. It begins to discharge. It's going to lose maybe 6% of its stored energy. It's going to leak out. And if we try to move the energy in the battery too far, there's only so far we can move electricity, we also will have a loss. Bitcoin will stay one Bitcoin value. But it's still better that we put things to work. And that's how we make the battery worth having. Yes, we may store some batteries in case we need them for a rainy day, power outage. But what we want to do is we want to put the battery to work, and the work should exceed the value of the energy. Now, the work cannot exceed the the amount of energy. Because thermodynamics, right? You, you, you can't have... If you had a big battery, had 10 kilowatts of energy in it, you're not going to get 20 kilowatts of energy out of it. But you can get the equivalent of 20 kilowatts of value out of it. Why? Because the machine that it runs can do things, and if it does them fast enough and efficient enough or conveniently enough, other people will pay for it more than they would pay for the energy cost. So then you end up with a type of arbitrage. It's like an energy arbitrage. This amount of energy comes in, and this amount of value comes out, because I take things and I stack value. And that way, even though I'm using a kilowatt in, and let's say 94% of a kilowatt out to account for loss, the, 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 the amount of work that 94 kilo, 94% of a kilowatt does exceeds the cost of that kilowatt to go in. That's putting energy to work. We need to put money to work that way. So if we do it with Bitcoin, we have zero loss. Other than maybe a little bit of transmission loss, a little bit of a fee. Okay? But if we put something in there like regular money, it needs to go to work in a way that exceeds... This is just... You've probably heard this before. It's a new way to think about it. I think it's going to snap a lot of light bulbs on a lot of heads. The work needs to exceed the loss of drain and transmission. So that's inflation. So that means if we're investing in something, and that investment gives us an 8% return, it's not heroic, but it's an 8% return. If the loss to the value of money at the same time is 8%, it's a zero-sum game. And you still did better than not investing because you would be a negative eight. You see how that works? And so when we're putting our money to work, we need to do basically, like we call a permaculture, an energy audit. There's no way to get more energy out the other side, but there is ways to increase value. If I can invest in a corporation through a stock or an index fund or something like that, and they're leveraging technology in a deflationary economy, I might be able to make an average of 15 20%. And even if inflation, real inflation is really high at 8, now I'm ahead. That's one way of looking at it. And hopefully we'll we'll get out of this inflationary curve where we know real inflation is probably that high. And you have to also be honest with yourself about inflation. Because since we like to be angry, we'll look at the price of a sheet of plywood and we'll act like that is all inflation. And it's not always all inflation. It's not because... There's supply and demand in the equation as well. And supply and demand, short supplies, and skyrocketing prices due to that short supply, those are transitory, which is a word for temporary. Those will rectify. But inflation in our economy, until the fundamentals of the economy change, can never be transitory in, in the way that you think it, they mean it when they say it. They, they know it's a magic word. It's a hocus-pocus word. Since it means temporary, it means it won't always be there. It means it will change. But it's never going backwards. So if, if you look at the cost of a commodity, and it, the real effect of inflation on it was 4%, but it's up 80%. The 80% may come back down. 76% may come back down. The 4 percent's there. It's not going away. Unless something happens so sufficiently to the supply side that you get excessive supply, which will falsely give the illusion that inflation down. You're still dealing with a supply and demand. Supply and demand and inflation are different things. So we need to always be thinking about when I put this battery to work, this money that I've made, I've taken this battery knife. I've put so much effort into filling it up. When I let energy out of that battery in any way, it needs to be sufficient that there's enough money to refill the battery and still have some other energy I can buy. So think of it that way. If, I, if it takes me a kilowatt of power to fill up a battery, it doesn't even matter what the loss is. A kilowatt of battle, uh, to fill up the battery. And by the time I drain the battery half a kilowatt, I have enough money from doing that to buy or somehow obtain another three-quarters of a kilowatt. I have a one-kilowatt profit. It's actually easier to think that way than think about it in dollars. And it starts to make you understand how important the work you do is. But what's the other thing that batteries need? we got to keep them charged. we got to put them to work, or they're not worth having. And if we just leave them long enough and don't ever use them and don't ever recharge them, they'll be dead and they might not even take a charge when we go get them. That's if you put your money in a bank. Let's say you had a, a rich uncle. Rich uncle, and in 1900, he put a he put million dollars in a bank account. And somehow it got lost. It got lost. It was there. The bank kept paying interest on it and all. I bet you'd think you'd be in great shape, wouldn't you? Great shape. If you, if, if somebody called you up and said, hey, Mr. Smith, uh, you had a, a great uncle in 1900 put a $1 million dollars in the bank and you're the only heir left alive. It's yours. All of it's yours. You'd think, shit, I got millions and millions of dollars by now, right? Well, maybe if you were in the United States banking system, sure, maybe. Sort of kind of. If you were in just about any other banking system in the world, maybe Great Britain, it'd be okay Switzerland, maybe maybe Spain, maybe I don't think so actually. but in a lot of places in the world, if you' if you if your great uncle was in pre-nazi Germany, Germany, odds are that that money was wiped out and gone. If it was in Poland, it's gone. Doesn't exist anymore. Nazis absorbed the banking system during World War II. How many places was the banking system completely destroyed, confiscated, and absorbed by another power? Right, Because the battery wasn't maintained. Because what you're relying on with a bank, someone else maintains the power supply for you and the maintenance requirement. So we have to think about that as well. So it's not that we won't use these institutions, but we need to be thinking about how we move money in and out of them. So here's the rules, and we need to learn the rules and rate them as to how to become wealthy and to keep our wealth in this country because taxes are the main way that the battery gets drained. And inflation we have to beat in some way by using energy and work. But taxes we can beat with their own rule book. So that's one of the biggest places to start thinking about this. And... There's really quite a few ways to either defer or avoid or do both with taxes. Defer means we don't pay the tax till later. Avoid means we don't pay the tax ever. That, that's that, that's just really, really easy way to think about it. So if you think about the most typical boring investment vehicles, I recommend one for everybody, and I definitely recommend one for SB. And that is the IRA, the 401k, et cetera. And they they literally split into two classifications, deference and avoidance. So a a conventional IRA or conventional 401K, the way it works is you can put up a certain amount of money in. There's limits based on your income and and things like that. But you put a certain amount of money in, let's say $5,000. And that $5,000 this year, if you made $70,000 in taxable income, it's a straight deduction, $5,000 off your income. Now you're paying tax on $65,000. That money goes to work for you. If you're going to retire next year, that's kind of a decent deal, sort of. If you retire in the next five years and you structure it right, it can be a really decent deal. But if you're SB, if you're in your 30s, you're going to work another 30 years before you can take that money out. It's fool. You're a fool that you would do that. That you would defer on the 5000 when you could avoid on all of the money that the 5000 can make you. If the five thousand can make you, let's say, a five X return or twenty five thousand, would you rather defer taxes on five or avoid taxes on twenty five? Since you're thinking in battery terms and you're thinking in long term terms, you need to avoid when you can. It's even better than deference. Deference is a thing that we use when we don't have the avoidance option or when it exceeds the value of the avoidance option. So to me, your investments, some of them need to be in conventional, everyday IRAs, 401Ks, depending on what you have available through your employer. Uh, SEPs are another option, simplified employee uh, pensions, uh, something like that. It's just a straight up. Money goes in there. It's in some form of a Roth if possible. And all the money I make will never be taxed. And I can withdraw that when I'm an old rich person. Now, I also think you need to, you need to be invested in crypto today. And I think if you just run out and throw all your money in crypto, you could end up hurt really bad. And when I say crypto today, I mean two things. I mean Bitcoin and I need a, ther- I mean Ethereum and I mean Bitcoin first. And the beauty of Bitcoin, and this is really hard for people to understand, it brings back at least 100-year thinking. And that's where I started this kind of piece of the podcast. When I said what made America wealthy, it was 100-year thinking. Even the little shop owner, little shop owner on a corner in Philadelphia, little farmer somewhere in New Hampshire. These men and women built businesses, homesteads, farms, that worked harder than most of us can even imagine to get to where they were knew something when I die and what I've built goes to my descendants they will start ahead of where I started and if they take the ethics and, and, and the good wisdom that I've given them and they use that head start the next generation will have a head start And they were thinking three to four generations minimum. And they thought, if that three to four generations can do this, then when we get to that seventh generation, my God. And they weren't thinking, and then we'll rule over everybody. They felt that this was possible for everybody, and it was. And when they took the money that was gold, and gold is an imperfect money, but it's a lot better than fiat. And when they took the money... And they destroyed the underlying hardness of the money. They robbed the mentality from people. To the problem today, and this is what I love about it, We beat up the millennials for 10 years on this show, and the first 10 years of it. We're, we're 13 years in now. We're done beating up millennials. They've grown the hell up. I'm proud of them. The millennials are the first generation I've seen. that really started to turn the corner back to this. I see in Gen X some too. Most boomers, it's not going to happen. It's too late. They lived their whole life. They were never exposed to the idea that there was an alternative. And yes, there's lots of millennial... So- there's more socialists in a millennial demographic than Gen X or boomer. I'm not saying that's not the case. But there's more people in, a, in a gen, uh, the Gen Y millennial demographics that are thinking today about their grandchildren, and they don't even have any kids yet, Then I was thinking about my grandchildren when I was 25. I didn't even ever know if I would have a grandchild when I was 25. I wasn't certainly thinking about it. And what we were conditioned to think because of this was you make enough money to put enough away to live a decent life in your retirement and so you don't run out of money before you die. And if there is anything left, your kids get that. And we actually pay people to teach us how to think that way. We actually pay That is a disgrace. If you want to know what squandered the true middle class wealth of America, it was us allowing that poison into our minds. And it was done with our money. Because why not spend money when it will be worth less tomorrow than it is today? And that is exactly what the system installed in 1913 and just continuously reinforced over and over again was designed to do. And the way Bitcoin changes this back is its hardness, its survivability, its indestructibility. And this this idea that you know the government's going to put it out of business or whatever like first of all it's not in business, it's a thing. It's protected by a global network that has its own self-interest in keeping it alive. It's indestructible, it's fast, And it has an absolute underlying scarcity. It's not just scarce. It's scarce. It's faster and less expensive than any other way that we've ever embodied energy. And I was listening to something by Michael Saylor today that I thought was a really great way to put it. He said, look at it this way. How much should it cost to put the railroad tracks down in America? But how cheap was it to move everything once the tracks were down, once the rails were down? And that's what people don't understand about. Building out Bitcoin to where it is today, that was the rails. We now have lots of ways to use those rails. Incredible ways to use those rails. So when it comes to crypto, what I'm going to say today, I've said before. The first person I ever heard say it was John Bush, and I loved it when he said it. I'm like, I'm stealing that. Get to the left of the decimal over time. That doesn't mean go mortgage your house and buy $50,000 worth of Bitcoin right now. But get to at least one whole Bitcoin. Make that part of one of your goals. And what I've seen, and I've seen this in everybody that gets involved with Bitcoin and the higher level um, projects, but I want to stick to Bitcoin for right now. As soon as they start to understand by actually owning Bitcoin, by actually taking part in the ecosystem of this Bitcoin, and they have the real understanding of how it works, they start thinking about One, not spending it. And not not spending it the way you don't spend your 401k. Totally differently. Like 401ks were set up to make spending hard and expensive. Spending Bitcoin's easy. Believe it or not, it's really easy. You can buy all kinds of stuff with it. Pretty much anything you want to buy, you can figure out how to buy it with Bitcoin. If you bought a couple Bitcoins a few years ago and it went way up and you want to use that money for something today, it's easy to spend. But people don't. Don't even spend a little bit of it. They start thinking about this, I have worked for this, it should work for me. And if I can't figure out how to have it work for me yet, I want to hold it. And then they start thinking about what it will mean to them in their retirement. And at that point, they haven't really crossed yet. But then when it begins to happen, they start seeing the vision that we lost in 1913. It was slowly raped from us up until the World War II years. They start seeing the vision of multi-generational wealth come back. It brings back seven-generational thinking because it's hard money. It's actual money. It's not a fabrication out of thin air. And I can't get into exact... I mean, I've talked enough about Bitcoin in the past, uh, Ethereum in the past, crypto in the past, but it's when you begin to participate in the ecosystem, you begin to understand. And we start thinking the way we did when we used to build amazing things. There's aqueducts that the Romans built in Europe, that if we wanted to, you could literally start running water across them again. They were not built with fiat. When the Romans turned to fiat, their entire system was already in decay by the time they got there. Hmm, that's kind of eerie, isn't it? This is a way to bring this back. And we need to start thinking this way. So some of your money must go into crypto. And the reason this goes under the tax rules, if you buy, let's say you bought five years ago, you bought five bitcoins. You still have your five bitcoins today. Do you know how much tax you owe? Absolutely nothing. And if when you retire, that's worth $5 million, at that point you still owe absolutely nothing. And if you straight up sell some bitcoin to take some money out, you only pay tax on that piece. The rest of it, you still owe absolutely nothing on. And if you borrow against it at that point, and we're not going to get deep into this today, but it is a tax avoidance strategy to build up so much of an asset that you can borrow against. Crypto just happens to be one you can do it with. That you can literally borrow against it for your entire retirement and still leave half of it to your heirs and never run out of money and never have the balance go down until you finally do cash your chips in and then they take it from there. That type of thing is really not possible with fiat. And when people say it's been done because there's all these wealthy families, they don't do it with fiat. They do it with assets. They own businesses. They own real estate. They own systems. They own technologies. They own patents. They own royalties. They don't own cash. Cash is the money of the peasant. Cash is the money of the peasant. The cash makes the peasant work to provide for the wealthy. The cash-based system where your money will literally guarantee to lose value keeps you working exponentially harder for a currency growing exponentially weaker which in the words of Michael Saylor is the road to serfdom. So a portion of your retirement needs to be in crypto, but it needs to be in Bitcoin. If you're getting started, do not even look at anything else. And if you are going to look at something else, look at Ethereum. And when you feel good about your position in those two, then take money that you would go to Vegas with and put on the craps table and you can put it there. I used to feel that way about Bitcoin and Ethereum, specifically even Bitcoin. I said back... Three four years ago, if you would not take the money to Vegas, put it on a craps table, roll the dice, and be okay with the outcome, don't put it in crypto. As much as I thought it was a good investment, I still felt that you had to be, you had to have that kind of risk capital mindset, because we didn't know yet. Bitcoin is a is not, it does, I don't believe it has the rapid return potential that it did in the beginning, but it is a much more secure investment today. At what 40, 42,000 wherever it's settled out today so far during this supposed crash, when it's still up massively over the last year, right? You notice that it's a crashing. Ah! My investment's only up one hundred eighteen percent in the last, you know, two years. It's crashed. Shut up. Um, it's safer and more secure today when you have European nation, EU, and Canada. With approved spot account ETFs that are being held by teachers unions and labor unions in retirement accounts. That makes it more secure because it's very hard at that point for the government to say, oh, we're going to destroy this thing. They'll regulate the hell out of it. They'll tax gains like they tax any other gain. That's the rules. That's how the system works. That's why you know, you probably want to get some of it into some tax avoidance uh, uh, strategies as well. Like, again... Money that's set aside that one day I'll borrow against it. I'm old. I don't care. I only need another 10 years. And I won't actually derode the value of it. And some of it needs to be put into situations where, you know, if you have Bitcoin in an IRA, and you can take gains out of the IRA without paying taxes on it, you could loan the Bitcoin inside the IRA. That's called renting your money. On what's known as a fully collateralized loan. What is that? That means you can't lose. The the, the, uh, the collateral is money. There's other money there that's already there to cover the debt if the if the debtor fails. And you take your interest every year out of your IRA as your income, and the balance never goes down. That's another way you can do things and never pay taxes on it. So crypto is a way to either defer or avoid tax. And the big thing about it is it's always portable. If you told somebody, you know, you might have to flee the United States 50 years ago, they would have told you, get the hell out of here now. We don't need you around here. You're an idiot. And and there's no better place, and there never will be any better place. You really feel that way today? Do you really feel that the United States could never be broken up like the Soviet Union? Can you predetermine if that happens, what part of it you'll be in? Can you predetermine that you will never be targeted by some rogue government within the United States, even if it basically stays together? Can you guarantee you'll never have to flee maybe even a state government? Or that they'll never come for you in some way economically? Wouldn't it be nice to have a form of wealth that can be transferred anywhere in the world by remembering 12 words in your head? I think it would. What if you were in South Vietnam when South Vietnam was a place when the U.S. pulled out and you had all your money in a South Vietnamese bank? What if you had your money in an Afghan bank few months ago. Don't always think you'll have a way to get your money out. Do you know what happened to thousands of American companies doing business in Argentina? They had their money in Argentine banks. The Argentine banks locked the bank accounts, force converted the U.S. dollars held in the Argentine banks into Argentine pesos, and then devalued the peso by 15x. Meaning you, you had your the value of your money cut by like divided by fifteen overnight and there was literally nothing you could do about it. Literally nothing you no way to move it, no way to change your mind, no way to get rid of it. Crypto fixes this, specifically Bitcoin. That's all I'm gonna say today. I think a portion of your retirement belongs in crypto in some form, and Bitcoin first. And until you fundamentally understand it deeply, Bitcoin only. And again, if you want some diversity there, Bitcoin, Ethereum. And I think Ethereum actually has potential for higher return in the short midterm right now than Bitcoin does. And I think both of them are down right now, and that's a good thing if you want to buy. Um, next, businesses. That's another thing that the wealthy always do is they go into business of some sort. Businesses are tax avoidance and tax uh, deferral strategies in addition to the fact that they are income generating machines. They're how we make the battery produce more value than we put in the battery in the first place because we're converting energy to work and work is creating convenience and using efficiency mechanisms to create what we call a profit. Got it? And this is, I, I'm doing this today and thinking this should be taught in high school. This should be taught in high school. This is actually, this sounds complicated if you've never heard it put this way before to a degree. It's not. It's actually very simplistic. I had a high school economics class It was difficult. It was AP economics, so it was actually a college-level economics class. It was in some ways difficult to pass. It had a lot of uh, formulaic math in it, focused a lot on supply and demand. It wasn't useless, but it wasn't useful this way. It was useful if what you wanted was to go to college and get a degree that somehow related to economics to check the box off. You already had kind of a freshman-level course time. And if you were going to go into financial analysis and uh, investment management or something like that, then maybe it had some value, at least the fundamentals that you could take with you. But the average person, it was was pretty pointless for that person. I can think of some kids that was in that class now and go, wow. But I can take a one that, like, he runs a concrete business. And I'm thinking, boy, the, the stuff I'm talking about today would be far more valuable. They stole this from us. They stole this from us. And when I say us, I mean the people. All the people. All the working class people. Mid-level business people, etc. They stole this from us. You build a business, and some portion of your life of money you spend anyway will fit into the outflows of that business. It's where it goes on a it goes on an income statement and it becomes an expense. Every dollar that you're going to spend anyway, you can I'm talking legally, legitimately, by the book. I'm not talking about bullshitting and getting caught and audited and thrown in Club Fed or ending up in hawk to the government for the rest of your life. I'm talking about following their rule book. There are many things in an average person's life that can be moved over and become expenses. One of those would be something as simple as a home office expense. I'm paying for the house. There's a portion of my house I use for a business. That becomes an expense. I I pay for this office. I pay for my wife's office space. And I pay for that whether I have a business or not. But the minute I have a business, it becomes a deduction. And when I move a dollar over, it's like earning two. When a dollar moves to an expense column, it's like earning two. Because I still have the dollar I saved by not paying tax on it, on the dollar that I earned. It may be, uh, sound like doublespeak, but it's not. You trust me on it. It's something you'll learn to understand as you begin to develop this for yourself. So I think that everybody should be looking to build a business. Now, I want to be very clear what I mean and what I don't mean. I don't mean... You should be looking to go into business, you know, start up an Amway or something like that, so that you can, on paper, lose money and in real life lose money. I don't mean that at all. I think if you're running a business, you should actually pay tax on the business from income from the business. It's not a business. It is a hobby if you don't earn an income on it sooner or later, but you still end up ahead. A business should be run for a profit. And it should be legitimate in its purpose and legitimate in the value that it provides. But once you have that model built, you have an income-generating stream that also reduces overall tax obligation per dollar earned. If you earn $60,000 a year in a job and you start a business, and that business nets you another $60,000 in profit... After both, like, the hardcore expenses that really are coming out of the you, your web hosting bill. If you have a site, you got to host it, right? So that's not moving a lifestyle component in. But all of it together, you end up now with $120,000 in income. You're going to pay a lot more taxes than just having the $60,000. Just paying a matching Social Security, et cetera, on the, on the additional $60,000, you're, you're going to pay a lot more. In total tax dollars, but when you say of of the 120,000 that you kept, how much did you pay in taxes? And when 120,000 is the, the taxable number, but there's another, let's say 20 in there, so now you're at 140. That 20 is things that you were able to expense against a business that you would have bought anyway, but now they go under the business. Now you do that math divided by 140 or 150 versus 120. And your tax burden per dollar that you actually really get goes down. The rich get richer and the poor get poor. It's not because the system's rigged. It's because the poor don't know how to work the system and the poor don't have the tools to work the system. So I think business ownership. Real estate. I think real estate is great, but real estate gets taxed. Real estate is a battery with a phantom load put on it. So it's like having a battery, and that battery is hooked up to an inverter, okay? And it's also hooked up to a solar charger uh, controller and a panel. And that panel produces a certain amount of energy every day, and it goes into the battery. But if the house isn't doing any work at all, but the, uh, the inverter is on, it's draining the battery, And so, you need to do work with it to really capitalize on it. Now, there's two types of real estate. There's personal real estate and there's investment real estate. Personal real estate is also an investment. So, if you own a home and you live in it, you have a cost associated with sheltering yourself and your family anyway. And the underlying equity value of that real estate is useful to you. Okay? So, it's... You're losing less than renting if you do it strategically correct. But if you buy two houses, you live in one and the other one's just like a getaway or something and it doesn't do anything to earn you income, it is, it is a financial drain. You could earn more money by investing in a stock or a Bitcoin. And it's also, it's permanently in a place. So if something goes sideways, you can't just take it and leave. It's not a yacht, that you're sitting in a slip in a really expensive port. And if the government of that country decides to tax all the yachts in their ports, you go, okay, bye. And you move it to a different port. Houses don't work that way. So if we're going to buy a house that's going to sit over here, we better be airbnb in it, right? We better be leveraging it in some way. We better be renting it. Because otherwise... We're literally draining the battery with an inverter and not using the inverter's energy to do anything. But real estate is a fantastic way to defer and avoid taxation through a phantom loss known as depreciation. won't get deep into that, today, but it's something you should look at. And precious metals. I, I have not turned my back on precious metals like gold and silver. I think they belong in everybody's portfolio. And I think that's something also to kind of dollar-cost average into over time. I won't say much about that over time. I just want to reiterate, as good as gold was for money, it sucks compared to Bitcoin. I won't talk about why today. I'm just going to tell you it does. It's slow and expensive and heavy to use and to secure. And Bitcoin is light and fast and cheap to use and secure. And that should be enough explanation for today. Next, do not do your own taxes unless unless you simply have income from a job and you don't have any type of way to truly deduct any amount of money and if you're in a position where you fill out like a 1040 EZ and you get back more and you pay in accountant's account not going to help you she's going to charge you money to fill out a simple form if you have you own a home you have children you run some sort of a small business, and you have investments. You need a CPA. Even you know a Jackson, Hewitt, and H&R Block, something like that. CPA, not someone to run a rapid return for you, but someone actually sits down and works out a Schedule C and any other of the tax forms you need to itemize things, etc. Um, you need a CPA. They they are worth more than their weight in gold. The money they will save you over the years. In fact, some of the things they teach you, you'll be able to then use that. And even if you had a new CPA, you bring that knowledge with you. Hey, we structure this this way. We call this this thing. Here's an example of a very simple thing. When you travel for business, you buy yourself a meal, take a client out to eat, even a bunch of clients out to eat, spend a bunch of money right, on a meal. Let's say you... big thing, totally legitimate, IRS IRS agent charged with auditing you could have been sitting in a seat next to you and would say, no, this was good. This is a total legitimate deduction. What do you think you deduct? 50%. That's what you get to deduct. 50%. So if you run an event at a hotel or something like that and you call it business meals, you get a 50% deduction. So if you ran a seminar, for instance, and you made $40,000 and it cost you $2,500 to feed everybody lunch that day, you would get a, if you called it meals, you would get a $1,250 deduction. Yeah? Okay. Now, if you call it catering, which is totally legitimate, you would deduct the entire price. That's just one example. If you had an accountant that didn't work for you, that just kind of just filled in blanks, when the Trump tax deductions kicked in, you would have still thought you got a deduction, but if you had a home office like I do, if you didn't have one that really read into it and understood how to take all the things that you didn't get from the SALT deduction, which was when you were deducting your property taxes, right, and things like that, and then they take all the other aspects of the expenses of your home and backfeed them through the square footage, you could have lost out on a $10,000 deduction you didn't even know you had. because you And I'm pretty switched on if you can't tell about this stuff. I would have never even known to do that. And even if I did, the time I would have taken to figure it out, then I would have been like, I'm not even sure I can really do it. I would have had to pay somebody to give me an answer because the IRS won't give you an answer. You can't call the IRS and say this is legit. They won't give you an answer. Then I would have still been behind. So don't do your own taxes. I also say stay out of debt, but sort of. Sort of. If you are running credit card debt on TVs and vacations and shit, you're wrong. Period. It's cancer. Period. If you have debt on a car, you might be wrong. If you need a car to work, and financing it made mathematical sense, and you compared the leasing option to the purchase option with a spreadsheet, and you made a decision to purchase on debt, with a spreadsheet, and that gets you to work, and you bought a car that's adequate for the job, and then you don't have to worry about it, and you look at the car, even though you can't put it on the balance sheet with the government as an expense, but you look at it yourself as an expense so that you can work, I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not. If you have a house and you have debt on it, I have no problem with that whatsoever, especially with the rates you can get for a mortgage. Are you kidding me? If you can't do better with that money, Go buy a four hundred thousand dollar house. And let's see, you put fifty thousand dollars in mortgage at three fifty. If you if you have the three fifty, if you can't beat a three percent return on that three fifty, I don't know how you got it in the first place. So I have no problem with that. And like I said, there are strategies that, where you can leverage debt to never pay taxes on assets. There's strategy where you want to use debt because you can create now an expense against money that otherwise you would have dropped into something. And when you dropped it in, it wasn't an expense. It was an investment in an asset in a business. Like work on a farm. If you do certain things on farms that are infrastructure, you're actually better off sometimes, this is why you need a CPA, borrowing the money to do it than spending the money to do it, even if you have the money, because now you're depreciating something over 30 years instead of rapidly expensing it. I can't tell you when and where, but you have to start thinking this way across the board. And I'll tell you what, even if you're never going to do it that way, the minute you start to have this mental switch in your mind, you'll do a better job managing money, even if you're much more mundane in the ways that you structure your things. Next, um, be careful where you get your advice and beware of personal bias. So what I notice with, let's say, crypto, for instance, every video... Bitcoin's going to go to 110,000 by the end of the year. Every article that's bullish on Bitcoin, etc., they get shared, they get tons of views, they get tons of comments. And he says, hey, uh, we're we're probably headed for a pullback. People don't want to read it, don't want to look at it. Why? Because it breaks their bias. I'm going to be rich with this. And that's true in getting your advice off the Internet, which should be transparent, but seldom is. This guy's really smart. Yeah, why? Because he has a blog? I see people writing articles. They're not even expressing their own opinion about an asset. They're expressing the opinion about a YouTube personality. And his, his the way they say, the way they infer credit that this guy knows what he's talking about is he told his 400,000 YouTube followers. I saw a guy that got 400,000 YouTube followers by getting hit in the balls long enough. Doesn't mean he knows what he's doing. He might, but it doesn't mean he knows what he's doing it's because he has a lot of followers. Right? So you got to be really careful. And you got to careful when you get your advice about everything, because what will happen is people will naturally seek advice on investing, starting businesses, what to do with their money, from people they know that will be favorable to their ideas to reinforce their bullshit, even if it's a bad idea. George Clausen said in the book that I've mentioned several times now, *Richest Man in Babylon*, advice is one thing that is freely given away, but watch that you take it. Take, you take what is worth having. Advice is one thing that is freely given away, but watch that you only take what is worth having. I sum that up and I say, don't take advice from anyone in any area where they're not at least as successful as you are in that area or at least successful in that area. So if if you're getting advice on how to run a restaurant from someone that's never even been a waiter, you're probably getting advice from the wrong person. If you're getting advice on the next crypto you should buy from someone who's started buying crypto this year and has only bought Doge, you really shouldn't listen to them. Does that make sense? If you're getting advice on how to start a podcast from someone that's never started a podcast, you should get your advice somewhere else. If you're getting advice on a business and how to run a business, you should get somebody, even if not at the same business, but somebody who has the operational experience of operating a business. And if you do that, You take investment advice from people who have invested intelligently and then take investment advice from people who have invested intelligently on the things they've invested in. If you have a good investment advisor, you have a good one, really good with conventional assets, stocks, bonds, securities, corporate investments, and you allocate a certain amount of your money for crypto, don't ask him for his advice on that. He doesn't know. But the stuff you've allocated to that segment that he's good at, Follow his advice there. Get an expert in each area or multiple experts in each area, multiple sources in each area. Be smart about what you do over time and don't get in a hurry. This is a patient, long-term thing. And the biggest thing I kind of alluded to a couple times today, think multi-generational. When you start thinking multi-generational, you'll be more conservative with your investments and more aggressive at the same time. You'll take... Less risks, but better risks and smarter risks and higher overall return risks. It's one thing to think about because what people are thinking right now is I want to be rich next year or even next decade. If you can start thinking, I want my great-grandchildren to be rich because of what I do. You'll think differently. So hopefully that was helpful. I don't know if it was a direct answer as to what SB was looking for. Uh, but honestly, this week, the way it's been so far, it's about the best I could do. Let's go ahead and wrap up. Let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do and you want to help support us, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is the General Hydroponics Combo Fertilizer Kit. Um, I'm just going to say it's on sale. It's a really great way to make growing hydroponic easy. And it's not the most cost-effective way, but it's pretty damn cost-effective and extremely easy. You can read the write-up to learn more. It will go out in my social media. Uh, it will go out in my daily mail, all of that stuff today. So make sure you're subscribed to one of them, and you'll be able to find it. And you can find it at tspaz.com just by looking at the latest uh, reviews. And everything I've reviewed will be there, and you can help us out no matter what you buy as long as you start there. That brings us to our song of the day. And I haven't forgotten this time, so I'll tell you our channel of the week last week that all the songs came from. So last week, I gave you a really mixed bag of songs. They were I Wish Grandpa's Never Died by Riley Green, Fortunate Son by CCR, Meet in the Middle by Diamond Rio, and Doc of the Bay by Otis Redding. And that was all based on an artist who was not included in the lineup from a Pandora station, that artist was Chris Stapleton. That's right, Chris Stapleton. And if you want to get my Chris Stapleton Pandora channel, go to the show notes for today's show, look in the resources, and you'll see a link down there. And you can click that link, assuming you have the Pandora app. And You can grab my well-trained Chris Stapleton channel and pull it right into your Pandora. I have no relationship with Pandora. I'm not an affiliate. I don't even know if they have something like that. I'm just doing this for fun. Today, we're starting a new artist or group. I won't say which. It could be a group. It could be an artist. But it's not a genre. It's not like 80s rock or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's an artist or a group. And they will not be in the lineup this week, but you will hear the things associated with them from a Pandora train station. And I was just it was a rough week so far, and it's Tuesday. It was a rough weekend, I guess. You know, I had the family issue, I got the um, Achilles tendon issue, etc. All the stress of that. I'm feeling better now that I got good news about the tendon, but I still wanted something chill today. And I just started going through the uh, channel and just skip, skip, skip until there was something that I felt good about found one of my favorite old songs by Dan Fogelberg, leader of the band. It's about as chill as it gets. And with that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
0: And only child alone and while, a cabinet maker's son hands were meant for different work and his heart was known to none he left his arm and went his lone and solitary way and he gave to me a gift I know I never can repay a quiet man Denied a simpler fate He tried to be a soldier once But his music wouldn't wait He earned his love through discipline A thundering velvet hand His gentle means of sculpting souls Took me years to understand thank you for the freedom when it came my time to go. I thank you for the kindness and the times when you got tough. And Papa, I don't think I said I love you near enough. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old. Blood runs through my instrument, and a song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of